Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. Doug Hemphill has been making movies sound sweet since he worked as a mix recordist on Apocalypse Now. Later, he would receive an Academy Award for Best Sound for The Last of the Mohicans and Dune, Part 1. In 2013, Hemphill received a nomination for Best Achievement in Sound Mixing for The Life of Pi. A few days before the Academy Awards, he called me on the show to discuss working on The Life of Pi and other films. Stay tuned as we go center stage with Doug Hemphill, the man behind the sound. You've worked on almost every film, every good film that's been made over the last 20 years, haven't you? I think I think you're going a little too far there. Except for I didn't get that I didn't get that Prometheus thing. I got to admit, but but it sounded good. I just didn't. Yeah, I just... no, it sounded very good. I love working with Ridley. He's a great guy, so yeah, he's terrific. But you know, I've worked on. I've been lucky enough to to work on some good films, and uh, I love storytelling. I love stories, and I love trying to use sound to tell stories. So, How, what what kind of impact does sound have on the image that we see? Well, it's it's pretty significant um, in the sense that we all, you know, have uh, sound memories and little things that we take for granted. That uh, it's very simple to create a mood or a feeling with with sound. Um, I think the best example, my friend Gary Rystrom, uh, who's, a, who's a great sound designer, said, "If you, if you could have a recording or a picture of your great great grandmother, great 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 grandmother." what would you choose? And a lot of people would say recording because you'd want to hear that voice. Sound is really important to people. Um, I certainly travel through a film to the actors' voices. and to, Yeah, I mean, for people out there in the audience who don't quite know what I do, it's pretty arcane. Um, uh, the way a camera man or, or woman racks focus on the image to determine what they want you to look at, that's sort of what I do with sound. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. And and really, because it's not just focusing on the music aspect, but it's dialogue, it's sound effects, all those things, right? Exactly. And I work with a, a team of people. You know, my partner Ron Bartlett mixes with me. And, uh, yeah, it's quite a, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of tracks and quite a lot going on. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, it's, it's also another aspect of what I do. It's not really a technical job that's sort of invisible to us. We're ultimately audience, you know, putting ourselves in the movie and engaging in the film and uh, responding to what's up there on the screen, not uh, a bunch of knobs and, and technical things. How did it start out for you? Um, in the beginning of the... Yeah, of like my... how, did, how did it start out for you? How did you get into this tract of being a, a re-recorder? Well, you know, it's funny because, um, I mean, you know, obviously in life, different doors open, different doors close. Uh, I was a musician uh, when I was a kid in the Bay Area, and uh, I fell in love with with film, and uh, I went to uh, USC uh, film school, and while I was there, I got hired on Apocalypse Now, and and, uh, left while I was still a student, and got to work under Walter Murch, one of the great uh, sound designers uh, in film. And I was very, very lucky. So that's how I started. What were some of the things that Merch taught you that you could utilize well, later in your career? Well, one of my favorite 
things that Walter's ever said. Uh, he's said many great things, but uh, he, he once said that um, it's a great honor to have an audience watch your movie because they're allowing you to dream for them. And I, I just thought that was so beautiful, and that's, you know, uh, that's an inspiring thing to say mm. for for people who work on movies and then try to make them as good as possible for the audience. Uh, and Walter is, is a guy who, uh, you know, you know Paco Snell is one of the great soundtracks of all time. Um, he's somebody who really knows how to focus and, and with great clarity what he wants an audience to be listening to in a very aesthetic and uh, sensual way, too, with sound. You talk about inspiration, and that's one thing that resonated me with me with Life of Pi, is the story is very inspirational. How did it resonate oh, yeah. with you when you first, when you first started uh, getting into this uh, material? Uh, what was the response that you had about working on this film and in knowing that perhaps you're really onto something substantial? Well, it's funny because, you know, as I said, I told Ang Lee, um, sometimes you watch a movie and you watch it again and it doesn't quite have the same impact. And Life of Pi has always had a significant impact on me every time I watch it. It's such a beautiful piece of work. And from the opening credits with uh, Michael Dana's music with Pi's Lullaby, I mean, I'd be sitting there at work finding myself in tears, you know, uh, listening to this music. And uh, it's it's just, it's such a beautiful piece of work. And it, it's hard to describe what it's like working on a film like this, um, because when we're working on it, we don't have all the visuals done, all this what's called CGI isn't completed yet. So we're sort of going on faith the pieces are coming together, the final music's coming in that Michael Dana's done and sound design that Eugene Garrity did. Um, so we're going on faith, and, and, and I have to say that Ang Lee brings out the best in people. He brings out the best emotions in people with his leadership, and then we knew wherever we were going it was going to be okay because of Ang. Do you think that uh, because of the way the evolution of technology that it's the right time for this film because in some ways the CGI was fairly seamless. It wasn't, uh, you know, it really, you really felt like you were there with a tiger. You're really there on that raft with, uh, with that young man. Yeah, this film couldn't have been made. Um, I mean, I've worked on so many films and seen the technology uh, move along and there's no question this is a benchmark, the way that Ang's used 3D, the way that we've used, we've done some of the mixing in Atmos, Dolby Atmos. Um, it, it's just, but it's still, uh, you know, it's still about ideas and emotions and feelings, uh, but, but the technology has allowed us to to really uh, focus and illuminate those those feelings and ideas. So, yeah, I don't think it could have been done even a few years ago. When you're and, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the old action in Hollywood, you know, don't don't shoot a film on water, don't shoot a film with kids, don't shoot a film with animals, don't shoot a film that's heavily dependent story-wise for CGI, um, and don't shoot a film about the meaning of life. And <laughs> Ang has done all of those in one one spell swoop. It's amazing. He's he's got he's really has amazing courage. Do they, when you're working on a film like this, do they test the sound with an audience to see, you know, what is working and what can be improved? Well, it's funny.
funny because when we started on the mix of, of Life of Pi, we did a little temp mix, and um, we'd have friends and family screening on the Fox lot. And then we were tasked with uh, making the New York premiere, um, which was considered another temporary mix, so to speak, uh, that would open the film at the New York Film Festival. And it, we were all, you know, working with Ang's leadership uh, and, and on instinct and kind of racing towards this premiere. And, you know, they showed it in New York, and Ang came back and said, well, this is really it. I'm happy. That's it. I don't want to reinvent the wheel. What, what we did uh, through inspiration and very quickly was, was very, very good. So. Now, you've been nominated several times and won an Oscar for... Uh for sound um, with last the, the last of the Mohicans. What is the criteria for um, being nominated and then ultimately what pushes a film over to a victory for an Oscar? I don't know, but when you find out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, on a basic level, your, your peers and your branch, the sound branch, and in my case, uh, nominate um, the films for best sound, and then it goes to the General Academy, uh, the largest branch of which is the actors. So um, that's how it works. What kind of challenges went into working on this film? And I'm sure that each film presents a specific challenge. Uh, what were some of the challenges with Life of Pi? Well, I, I think primarily um, keeping it very simple. And if it wasn't telling the story or making the film better, it didn't belong in the soundtrack of the movie. Um, I think that was the biggest challenge and uh, hopefully a challenge that, that we met. You know, even the storm sequence, you know, you could consider, there's two storm sequences. The first one where he loses his family, where Pi loses his family. I mean, you, you could... You could view that as a big action scene, but that's not how I viewed it. It's it's uh, it's sound wise contained within the film. It's it's the story point. You know, he's losing his family, and it's frightening and horrific. But it's not an action sequence, you know. And I didn't mix it like one. So when I think of that scene, I think of the um, the zebra and how. You know, the zebra jumps off of the ship and ultimately breaks its leg, but there's so much chaos in the film at that point, and it really, you know, the, the film has so many different levels. At one point, it's, it's kind of sad, and then at one point, it's uplifting. At one point, it's looking at really how far can a person go to rise above who they really think they are. Um, exactly. And then it's obviously the tiger within us, and um, yeah, there's a lot of things going on in the film. And uh, did you look at the I, did you look sorry? at the film did you look at the film as an allegory when you're working on it? Uh, I'm very um, yeah, I could certainly view it as that, and, and there's no question that's going on. Um, but I'm I'm very direct in the way I look at something, and uh, very emotional in the way I, I you know view a film um, so no I don't and I, I, there's not a lot of intellectualization when I'm watching a movie even when I go to a theater I'm, I'm really responding on a more emotional level yeah I love to suspend my disbelief even though I've yes. seen a million of them I really want to go and 
I don't want to look at it with a critical eye. I want to be transported. You know, I want to be on that raft. You know, and I want to. Exactly. I want to. I want to yeah. go because that's part of the. That's part of the great things about movies. I mean, did you think when when you were working on them that you would lose that sense of wonderment? I always go with my instincts. I always go with my initial reaction to a film, and I try to remember that because you can, you know, build on multiple experiences where you sort of go off the rail, and 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 you can't forget what it was like the first time you saw it and how you felt. It's really important. What is and of course, of course, with a guy like Ang, I mean, he's he's right there all the time, and he is so focused and so um, nurturing and collaborative. I mean, he really is an amazing human being. When do you, when do you, at what point do you realize that you're just nailing it? You know, where you're you're making these decisions, and you get that kind of feedback. And what is that process like for you? Well, that's an interesting question because. Um, I mean, uh, I'm sort of a performance mixer where I like to, to roll and, and um, see it in real time and perform the sound in real time. Um, so it, it's more like being an actor where a director will say, I like that performance or I don't like that performance you did, Doug. And so that's sort of how it works. I mean, I've done films where, you know, for instance, Massacre Valley and Last of the Mohicans, that's, that's our first run through. That's the first time we ran through it. Um, and of course, I mean, there's what we call premixes. So we've sort of uh, organized the material and, and done some work on it. But that's the first time through. And it's the same with the uh, storm sequence in Master and Commander. That's the first pass. So sometimes you just fly by the seat of your pants, and something great comes out of it. It's just a performance. So. Well, you you know, speaking of which, uh, another film that you worked on that you were nominated as well um, was Walk the Line. Oh, I love that film. Oh, I, I, that, yes, I love that movie too. <laughs> but uh, that's a totally different vibe as well. Those are a lot of like concert sequences, and it's more, you know, it's it's more like about this uh, country western star. Yeah, with a lot of emotion in there. I mean, you know, Donnie Cash's life was very tempestuous. So, I mean, I love that scene where June Carter says, "This is your second chance." Mm-hmm you know, on the bed, uh, when he's he's sort of detoxed from drugs and God knows what all, and she looks at him and says, this is this is your second chance. That's, that's an amazing scene. Oy. Do you, Do you find that, because um, I've interviewed a lot of directors, and some of them really look at a film as if it's a, a score, you know, like a score, a soundtrack, or a score, a musical score. Um <laughs> Do you find that filmmakers that you've worked with that have that more, that sense of aesthetic, are they easier to understand the language of their craft? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain, but I think um, there's a lot of unspoken um, synergy or whatever you want to call it, tacit understanding among creative people. And there's, um, I mean, we're in a little room mixing this film. It's the end of the line. It's a, really one of the last things you do in a movie. God knows the director's done so much hard work and maybe gotten 30 or 40% of what they intended on the screen. So they're now they're in this little sanctuary where we're mixing the film. And, um, you know, there's a lot of tacit understanding, a lot of things that don't have to be spoken, words that don't have to be spoken or ideas. And you just bring what you have to the table and 
you know, it's it's everybody bouncing off each other that makes it uh, good or bad. The technology has changed since the uh, early days of Apocalypse Now. Um, tell me about some of the advances in you know sound recording and mixing that have really opened up your palate and really given you those tools to really, you know, like you say, you're talking about the emotional angst of a film or being able to create those sequences, um, you know, like the storm sequence. Well, um, a good example would be, you know, Dolby has just come out with the Atmos system, which is you know, anywhere from, you know, 45 to 60-something speakers. Uh, and, you know, we, we talked about uh, doing a sort of a separate additional mix for Life of Pi and Dolby Atmos. So we sort of, uh, you know, played around with it and, and got some ideas together and then brought Aang on the stage of Zanuck Theater at Fox and played some of it for him and said, well, what do you think? And, um, you know, we all agreed that we would use it to serve the story in the film and not be doing it for some, you know, new speaker system in and of itself. And Aang said, um, I think we can give the audience an embrace of empathy with these speakers. And I know that sounds really abstract, but um, when you hear Life of Pi and Dolby Atmos, there's no question. It uh, is enveloping you. It's, it's like going to the next level of speaker systems in, in theaters. It's it's pretty significant. Um, and Michael Dana, the composer, you know, we had, uh, Ron Bartlett in particular, had moved uh, some of the music out into the room. You have overhead speakers, and you have all these speakers going down the walls. I mean, it's it's an amazing system. And he had moved some of the music out into the theater and moved it around, and Michael Dana, the composer, wanted to go even further, and did. Uh and, and it's a great, it's a great result. It's a pretty impressive uh, system. Speaking of impressive, your credits once again. Um, I'm just looking down, and there's one film that you worked on that I really loved, uh, Immortal Beloved. Oh God, Bernard Rose. That was I got to tell you, going to work every day and listening to Beethoven. Oh my God. But you know what it was about that? It's when it's the scene when Gary Oldman, who played Beethoven, when. Uh, he, somebody comes and I don't know if, who it is, but he wants to find out about Beethoven's music. And he goes, I just don't understand what is that. And Beethoven, obviously, I'm just kind of remembering it, but he says, That's the sound of a person waiting for his lover and she's late. Or remember that scene where yeah. it's, it was that quartet piece or something. And and you really you really got a sense of God. This guy just didn't compose music, but this was this was his heart and soul, uh, you know, in in these musical notes. I know uh, that was an amazing film, and Gary Oldman was really really remarkable in it. I love that film. Yeah, and then the Ode to Joy when he's what was he deaf at that point and he's conducting and yeah yeah just uh, really. Really beautiful. Are there some films that resonate with you more than others that you've worked on? Oh, of course. Which ones? Uh, oh gosh, don't. I, I'm not going to do that. There's, They're like your children, huh? You you can't do a Sophie's yeah. you can't do a Sophie's Choice in this one. No, I can't. I can't. That would be too hard. There's there's some really great ones. I, I you know, almost famous. I mean, there's. Yeah, we'll God, see. Th- th- there's I, a lot of movies that are I just. I, you know, the end of Jerry Maguire, I just fall like a baby. I can't take it. And then, um, and then I, I, I love the fabulous Baker Boys. Oh, I love that film. I just showed my son that that film, and uh, 
It's so beautiful. Steve Clovis, great writer, great director. And there was something that... There, I just love the kind of the simplicity of that movie and that relationship. It was really this love triangle, you know, where you have the, the brothers and then you've got, um, you know, this woman that comes on and, and just how, I just love the dynamics of that. And then also kind of the style. It was very, I just love the style of that film. Yeah, and Grusin's music, oh my gosh. It's gorgeous. What constitutes success for you, Doug? Uh... It's it's about it's about the social aspects of mixing a movie. I mean, that's what it's all about. Whether the film is successful or that, that you know, I, I hope that every film is successful. I mean, but it's about being in a in a social environment with with people, with small number of people on the stage, and and really sharing creativity with people and ideas and. Uh, being collaborative and open, that's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's a, it's a great job. Have the, uh, have the scores and, and the recordings become more expansive as, you know, based on the film and as we've moved forward with technology? No, no, I don't think so. And I mean, you know, Michael Dane is a good example of that. His, his score is so beautiful and eloquent and yet so simple. Um... Yeah, he he got it down to exactly what he needed to do to, to to tell the story with the music. It's it's amazing. He did a beautiful job, and he won a Golden Globe for it. So, no, he's a, he's quite the composer. I mean, I think that uh, Pi's uh, theme is just very haunting. So Pi's lullaby. Oh yeah. my God, it's such a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. Well, now um, when you when you approach a film you know, like Life of Pi, how many tracks do you have to sort through? I mean, is it, because I, I think you're, you know, you talked a little earlier, you know, it's like you're an editor and you have all these hours of footage and you have to pick and choose what you're going to use. Is it well, um, the sound designer Eugene Garrity, who has worked with Aang, I think going back to the, uh, the ice storm, right? I think he goes back up far. Um, you know, he'll sort of put together tracks and, and do a lot of a lot of really beautiful work. So, you know, as, as I'm mixing his material and, and uh, whatnot, I'm just sort of balancing and finding, you know, the right focus and levels to, to play things at to make the story work. So it, it takes a village, let me tell you. <laughs> About how long does it take for you to, like, how long did you work on Life of Pi? Uh, gee whiz, that's—I I would say eight weeks, maybe. Wow. Whereas when I was on the mix of Apocalypse, I was in the machi uh, machine room, which was a sort of technical job. Um, that was—I worked on that for a year. Now, did you, uh, you know, when you were working on Apocalypse Now, uh, what kind of feedback did you get from uh, Coppola? Well, that was, you know, I mean, that's. But that was above my pay grade. That was Walter and, and Mark Berger and Richard Beggs were oh. the mixers. They were the mixers. Yeah. Um, so, but I, you know, I, I felt I was working for Francis for his company, American Zoetrope, and it was really wonderful. I mean, I can't tell you what it felt like to be a film student uh, working, you know, at, at Francis Coppola's place. And I mean, he was so uh, inclusive. You know, if you had a party in his house, all the employees would be invited, and you know, you. 
Christmas, he'd come around, you get a basket of his wine or whatever. He was, he was a great guy. I love that Coppola Zinfandel. Well, there's, believe me, back then, the wine wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> now, it must be pretty exciting as, a, as, as really a person that loves cinema, because you've worked on, on a lot of films that have really, you know, had a lot to say with the cultural landscape in, in American cinema. I mean, Blade Runner. Um, and what a, what a great... What a great score uh, that was. A couple of uh, months ago, they did a re-release uh, where uh, you know this guy went and he re-recorded all the tracks of uh, Blade Runner, which was amazing. It was a soundtrack. I think it's like what the twentieth or fiftieth anniversary, something like that, of uh, of the soundtrack. Well, we, we we did a. I mean, obviously, you know, there's economics involved here. We did the final, final, whatever. Um, re-release of, of uh, Blade Runner for Ridley, I think it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, and there was, um, we were dealing with original mixes from the early 80s, uh, which was a, a much different time uh, technology-wise. And there were three different mixes, I think. There was, there was a mix done in England, there was a mix for the New Art Theater, and uh, I don't know what that was. And then there was a mix that was done for a later release uh, through Skywalker Sound. So we took those three mixes, and um, you know, and we, I mean, part of our goal with Blade Runner was to keep the original sort of you know naivete of the track intact. Mm. You know, not not to reinvent the wheel because it really is. You know, you're just doing a restoration. You're not reinventing the wheel, and it's really important to remember that sometimes on films that part of what made it great might have been, you know, the rawness of the track or whatever. Mm-hmm. What you about you? Wanna, it's, it's like Touch of Evil is, you know, an incredibly kind of rough track. You know, with uh, loops and ADR and the same wind sound, and but you wouldn't want to change that because it's part of the charm of the movie. Now with the uh... You know, once again, you're you're saying don't make a film on water, don't make a film with animals and kids or whatever you said earlier, and you've got that. You know, because really part of the soundtrack is the ocean, because right. You, you know, so that must present a challenge in itself based on doing something like The Dark Knight, which, you know, now you're talking about more explosions, that type of thing. Well, it's funny because on The Dark Knight, I, I did a temp mix and I was. Books, so I couldn't do the the final mix. I was I was on Tropic Thunder, um, but Chris, the director, Chris Nolan, I came in and I said, "Well, Chris, when do I get to see the film?" And he said, "Well, I'm not going to sh- I'm not going to show you the film." I said, "Well, what do you mean? How can I do this this temp mix if I haven't seen the movie?" And he said, "I want to see you respond to it as you watch it." And I said, "All right, game on." And we had the the best time we had the most fun doing this six-day temp mix on dark nine it was it was a blast so is, is that kind of a common thing to do a temp mix because i know that composers will do temp tracks but then i also hear that sometimes a temp track can be like a it can be they get caught into temp death you know oh yeah so what oh, yeah I've worked, I've, I've worked on films where you know um the temp track amusing because you're choosing it depends on how you do it. If you're just pulling from every great music you ever written, you know you can you can do a temp music track that uh, is un 
you know, unmatchable. You can't, there's no way a composer can match that. So, yeah, that can be very difficult. Um, you, you have to be careful about that. You worked on this other film that I that I thought was a lot of fun, The Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your experience with that one. I thought that was really a clever a clever film, the way they did it. No, that's a great mashup. Um, well, it's weird because, you know, Drew Goddard is a, is a terrific guy. He's an amazing person, uh, really good writer. And I was working with him, and um, I came in one day with a Los Lobos sweatshirt on because I'm a fan of the band. And he goes, uh, Los Lobos, New Mexico. And I said, no, Los Lobos, the band. And I said, are you from New Mexico? And he said, yeah. And I said, where are you from? Because I love New Mexico. He said, um, Los Alamos. And I said, well, wait a minute. You're from Los Alamos. You're, you're not related to Robert Goddard, are you? Hmm. He said, yeah, that's my great uncle. So we got a good laugh out of that because he's, you know, related to the father of American rocketry, and he's making Cabin in the Woods. Wow. So, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was pretty funny, but I love that film. It was just uh, crazy. And that that film was, uh, the mix was definitely made under duress because at that time, I think MGM had declared bankruptcy or whatever, and we had a bondsman on the stage, mm-hmm. and it was, it, was, it was pretty tough. We had to, we had to finish. You know, it wasn't released. I wasn't released for I think a couple of years after we finished mixing it. Wow. Yeah, it's it's interesting sometimes how how things can really can really change, you know, and just the nature, the transitory nature of of Hollywood, right? Oh yeah. How was working with Guy Ritchie on Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Uh, no pun intended. Um, we we had we had worked on uh, Rock and Rolla, and obviously been fans of his. Uh, so it was you know he has he has a love of language that I think is unmatched. Just the the musicality of language, the way he uses it, and uh, I, I just really enjoy his work. So. Um, is is there a type of film that you won't work on, or is it? Uh you know, like what? What? What are the types of projects that you that you look for that resonate the most with you? Well, it really comes down to somebody, you know, uh, wants to be collaborative. If somebody wants to, you know, have me put myself into the film and bring what I can to the table, and I say that again, like an actor giving performances, it doesn't mean they're going to like everything I do, but it just means they want me to bring what I have to. To the film. If somebody doesn't want that, there's no point in me being there. Right. Well, the, the nice thing about uh, your body of work, you just don't do horror film. You you really do a cross section of uh, of genres. That's pretty cool for yeah. you, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's called making a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also too, when you did, like, so you're working on a film like Tropic Thunder. That film was hysterical. I mean, you know. Those must be a lot of fun to do those kinds of films, or do you kind of, uh, once you kind no, of get that into was it... was fantastic. I mean, working with Ben Stiller, I mean, he's such a great guy. Um, he really was was just um, very open to, to what we wanted to do, and, I mean, we wanted to use sounds that... Uh, there's a funny thing. Uh, we told him about... Uh, I don't know if you know the Ballard sequence in Apocalypse, where... The little footbridge blows up, 
you know, where there's a guy running across and they rocket it and it blows up. Oh, right, 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 sure. Yeah, and Walter Murch put some bowling pins in there. It's just a great sound. You know, you'd have to listen to it to hear it, but they're, they're definitely there. And we told Ben about that because he, he loves film. I mean, he's such a scholar when it comes to film. He's a total Trekkie and loves Star Trek. And we told him about the bowling pins, and he just uh, was really into that, so he wanted us to put some bowling pins <laughs> in front of the expo. So, yeah, we had we had so much fun on well, that film. Well, you know, he did a he. There was a, a a series that he did. I think it was on Fox. That was. I just thought it was it was really really a lot of fun, and it was a lot of parodies on films. But I think uh-huh. it. I think it only ran a season. But it, I think it was just a little too hip for uh, for television, you know. Yeah, he was that film. Uh, we just laughed so hard. On the, it was just amazing. So are you uh, yeah. are, are you excited about Oscars coming up? Sure, absolutely. I mean, anything that has to do with Life of Pi. I mean, you, you know, you talk about films that come along and are sort of benchmarks. And for me, this is one of them. It's just such a, a wonderful piece of work and. I have such respect for Ang Lee. He's an mm. amazing person. What, what 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 does it resonate for you? I mean, when you think about your work on this film, what is the one touchstone that you take away from this project? Um, that's interesting because uh, if I was to take away anything from this film, it would be the fact that I was there and supportive and and. Uh, believed in what Bing was doing and, and, you know, worked very hard and um, put myself into it, into the movie. You know, I felt what he was doing and trying to get across, I think. And uh, for me, that's that's what I take away from the film. Do you think it was, a, you know, like he's using all these different elements, but do you think it was a hard sell to get this film made? Oh, God. <laughs> you said a mouthful there. Uh, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and believe me, um, very difficult film to make. Very difficult. Yeah. Logistically, just logistically, just unbelievable. I was um, I was really impressed with the 3D. I mean, I, I kind of got a little burnt out on the 3D, but I loved Avatar, and uh, I mean, I I saw the the Hobbit 3D in the 48 frames. But uh-huh. and and it was like the the putting on those sunglasses just darkened the image. But with this life of pie, it's just it, it's so it's just fluid. I mean, it 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 just really enhances the cinematic uh, you know experience. So I I think that it just I don't know. I just found the whole thing just really quite amazing. It is, and um, I gotta say, for movie lovers out there, it's. Uh it's only going to get better and better as far as, you know, presentation and what's going to be available out there. It's just going to, you know, we're going to have 8K screens, and it's just going to be amazing. Well, now, I've heard that they're going to start pretty soon. They'll it, Everything will just be digital, right? I mean, the 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 signal will be digital, and uh, but the quality... It's going to change. It's really the ultimate mandate of the filmmaker or whatever to take digital technology and make it human. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that goes for sound and picture and you know all all those elements to make it somehow an aesthetic experience for the for the theater goer. What do you What do you think it is about you that that has given you such a long career? What's your secret, Doug? Uh, 
I just I, I like I like film. I love movies. I love stories, and I like to work with people. It's really that simple. And I'm a problem solver. You know, I go in and uh, I don't waste time on stuff that doesn't have anything to do with solving the problems that's put in front of me. So um, that's how I approach it. Well, do you have anything else to add? And we really are, we're just so stoked that you were able to take time out and, uh, and join us on our little radio station here. Well, well thank you. I, I just want to say uh, how much I appreciate all the people out there that have supported Life of Pi and, and what I ain't tried to do. So I thank you. Are you ready for your acceptance speech? I, I never go to the Oscars thinking that. I, I, I just won't do it. It's, it's, it's too much of a setup. You really have to go to those award shows and just take joy in, in the people who do win and um, their happiness. And um, You can't go there thinking you're going to win at all. It's just really not a good approach. I mean, the, we've, the work we did was the work we did, and we're proud of it, and mm-hmm. we know that it was good, and I don't know, it's, it's, if it helps the film, it's great to be honored and all that, but um, dangerous thing to go there thinking you're going to win or whatever. But does the Oscar, is that like just the ultimate validation that it was the right decision and it's the acknowledgement that what you did, um, no, it's no. not? I mean, all due respect, Ang Lee telling me that uh, I did a great job was the validation that, that means the most to me. My peers, my friends, the people that you know got into the lifeboat with Aang and and did this uh, those that that means the most to me, really. And I'm not trying to take away from being nominated. I think it's great. It's wonderful, and it means a lot to me. But um, you just get really close to people in a film mm-hmm. uh, like like this, and uh, what they think and feel means means the most to me. If you would like more information about Doug Hemphill, visit imdb.com. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. <laughs>